Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Debrief from the Business of Fashion, where each week we go deep on our most popular BOF professional stories with the correspondents who created them. I'm Lauren Sherman. How did a 75-year-old brand triple its sales in just four years? Dior, the famed Parisian fashion house, is best known for one magical decade in the middle of the last century when its founding designer created looks that would serve as the foundation of the modern wardrobe for decades to come. But it wasn't until 2017, when owner LVMH took full control of the house, that the business would begin to grow rapidly, reaching an estimated $7 billion in sales by 2021. How did they do it? BOF Luxury Editor Robert Williams is here with me today to discuss his recent case study, which documents the transformation step by step. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. So to start... Can you just sort of break down exactly why you decided to do this as a case study? Why did you think it was worthy of the case study format? Well, I felt like the case study would give us a chance to really dive deep on a business story that hadn't been covered that much. If you look at the luxury industry the past five or six years, the biggest story by far was this remarkable explosion of sales and profits at Gucci, which completely transformed its parent company, Caring. At the same time, kind of behind the scenes, starting a bit later from 2017, 2018, there was this really big acceleration at Dior. But because its owner, LVMH, doesn't break out the numbers, it hasn't gotten as much attention from the investors, the marketplace, journalists. It's also a part of a bigger group where it's just part of the puzzle, so it's a different context. But it seemed like there was a lot of territory that was worth maybe diving deep about how this brand has transformed itself. Let's start with the beginning and and talk about the history of Dior and what happened about five years ago to kind of shift its trajectory significantly. Well, Dior is certainly one of the most iconic brands in the luxury industry, one of the most famous French names. It's been that way since 1947 when it was founded because it was right after its founding that Christian Dior debuted this new look, which was this hourglass-shaped silhouette that was much more romantic and fantastical than anything that people had been able to wear since all of the years of the Great Depression and then the Second World War. So that really took the entire fashion world by storm. Then it went through lots of different mutations. It was owned by this textile group 
after Mr. Dior died and was not really like a business that did terribly well. And it was a part of a rather distressed profile of retailers and fashion businesses that weren't doing very well. And that was when Bernard Arnault, who is now France's richest man, was able to buy the group back in 1984. Since then, he has been investing and bringing this business back up to what he thinks it could be. He believes there's no reason that it shouldn't be as big of a company as its number one rival, Chanel, which is the other neighboring company that does beauty and couture, which is kind of the main analogy. And that also has like a a real focus on women and women's products. So that's always been the benchmark. And he's been willing to invest a lot of money to get it there. So he first did that by hiring John Galliano in the late 90s to be Dior's designer. He and Sidney Toledano, who is now the CEO of the LVMH Fashion Group, sort of remade Dior as a modern luxury brand. And it was a big success story. They had what's called the Lady Dior bag. That was popular. Hedy Slaman did Dior Homme. That was very popular, very influential on other brands. So for 20 years, Dior was growing. But around 2017, 2018, something changed. What was the creative and executive shift that put it on a different course? You're very right that the first 20 years of this turnaround, or even more than 20 years under Bernard No, with Sidney Toldano, with designers like Gianfranco Ferre, and then Galliano, who was just creating such a spectacular, sharp, pop, contemporary image for the brand. And that was really transformational. And the company had grown to be, you know, over $2 billion in annual sales. And it had doubled its sales within five years going into 2017. But in around 2017 and 18, they did a few big shifts. They hired Maria Grazia Curie, who was formerly the co-creative director at Valentino alongside Pierpaolo Piccioli. They hired her to take over the women's wear. And then actually Bernard Arnault, who had owned Dior's fashion business in a separate holding company, he actually sold it to LVMH so that LVMH would own his entire fashion portfolio. LVMH had already owned the beauty and perfume part of the business for years. And soon after that, they put in place a new CEO, Pietro Beccari, and they put in place a new menswear designer, Kim Jones, with the idea that they were going to really accelerate this business that had already created a, you know, a pretty tremendous success. And who did Maria Grazia and Kim replace, just for our records? Kim was replacing Chris Van Ash, who had succeeded Eddie Sliman and kind of carried on this Dior um, concept in a way that, you know, it was respectable. It was not something that fashion people were often a fan of and enjoyed going to his shows. I don't think it had a huge impact outside of the fashion bubble, except a couple different commercial lines. Like um, there was those Christian Dior Atelier t-shirts. There were a few things he did that were quite successful, but it wasn't like what we see with Dior um, today. Maria Grazia was replacing actually like a duo of studio in-house designers who had come in to fill the gap after Raph Simons left. Because Raph was there for just like three years, but then he left quite suddenly to take this big job at Calvin Klein. You have these two new designers coming in to do the women's and men's. You have a new CEO, Pietro Beccari. He replaces Sidney Toledano, who is promoted to run the LVMH Fashion Group. Pietro came from Fendi, 
And what was sort of their missive? Now they're under the LVMH umbrella officially. I don't know how much that actually changed the way the business was run, but it changed it in some way, I'm sure. But what was the strategy that Bakari put in place with these two designers that has been implemented for the last? I think Dior, if you look back a few years, it was a perfect example, even if a rather large brand, of being one of these fashion brands that we say, like, the brand is bigger than the business. This is something people like to say a lot because they had invested so much in its image, so much in awareness and in creativity, but they hadn't all been landing on, you know, commercial products that they could sell in the kind of quantities to make them be able to really compete with some of the biggest brands out there today. And, you know, it was a substantial business at $2.3 billion, but after the LVMH takeover, they looked at certain regions and they said, hmm, it's really over-indexed in some. It was almost as big as Chanel in certain regions. And in others, it was really far behind. And they just said, you know, we need to find a way to invest and do what it will take to get this business on the scale of these really big brands like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and Chanel, who are growing much, much faster than other brands that didn't have the same kind of means to invest. Another way to compare Chanel and Dior is there are very few of these fashion houses that have such strong house codes in their apparel in particular. You mentioned the Dior bar jacket. If you think of the Chanel jacket, similarly influential on the broader market. And so it makes sense that LVMH would believe that it did have potential to match Chanel in terms of reach and influence in the apparel market as well. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense in some ways. Dior's legacy was really substantial. And then the creative legacy of his successors has been really important too, much in the way that Chanel has, you know, not only all those foundational codes that Coco gave them, but now also the long history of all the things Carl did there. I think the thing that they had to think about differently, though, was where did they put the creativity in the business? Dior was, like a lot of other luxury brands at the time, doing really interesting things on the runway. But then when you went into the stores, a lot of the products were not going to find their way onto the shop floor or not even necessarily a version of them that was terribly similar to what you had seen. So they've had to think about how can we hire people who are going to put a lot of their creative energy into making hit products, but who can still do a runway show that's worthy of the Dior name. I think that was really kind of the big challenge of what they've been trying to juggle. So let's talk about those products. You mentioned in the case study, this revamped bag architecture. The bag offer at Dior has evolved a lot and is surely what is driving a lot of their kind of spectacular expansion. Before, they depended very heavily on the Lady Dior shape, which now they do still have as their bestseller. They've positioned that as a much more expensive bag and as a much more exclusive product that's kind of almost as expensive as a quilted leather bag from Chanel, but not quite. And I think in terms of the pricing, they've been very smart about exploiting this space between Gucci and Chanel, where almost everything they sell is more expensive than Gucci and a little bit less than Chanel. 
And if you were to think about it in terms of how fashion forward the offer is, you kind of have that too. It's not quite so classic what the handbags look like. It's not the same styles that they've been pushing for like decades as true icons, aside from the Lady Dior. But it is also not quite as twisted or very like fashion forward as the kind of overall message that we've gotten from Gucci, who did so many more unexpected things. If you think about a lot of what that brand has done the past few years, they brought back the saddlebag. That is, of course, an icon that comes from the Galliano era. But when they brought it back, they did it with these new techniques. Actually, Mario Grazia has patented this technique about doing these complex embroideries directly on the product, which is actually quite revolutionary because typically if you want to have very like intricate embroideries, you have to order the stocks of that material months in advance. If you don't know how many you're going to sell, that's really hard to gauge that order. Because if you order too much, you've paid a tremendous amount of money for these embroidered textiles. What they've started doing at Dior is they will like do this sort of 3D embroidery directly on the product. And it has this sort of sculptural quality to it that I think to a lot of consumers just looks more expensive than what a lot of the other monogram canvas items were coming from other brands on the market. Both of these designers definitely have a merchandising talent and acumen. And we've talked on the podcast before about how important that is for creative people in fashion, leading fashion brands at this point. And they also are both good marketers in very different ways. Can you talk a bit about how they've used their platform to develop the Dior brand further? I think they've been really smart about widening the Dior audience, especially for the Dior runway offer. They have done so many iconic, amazing shows and really challenged standards of beauty over the years. People looked to the Dior runway for something quite unexpected historically, but it was also sometimes a little bit all over the place because the fashion division and the beauty division operate quite separately. And within the beauty division, each of the perfumes is kind of targeting a very different type of consumer. And within the fashion house, the men's wear, the home wear, the children's wear, the women's wear, were kind of all doing their own thing in a lot of ways. So I think what they've done quite smartly is take these two new creative directors and decide what are some common codes that we could use to unify Dior's message and really like ramp up awareness of different aspects of Dior across the product offering, but while also kind of reaching out to different kinds of people. Kim did a lot of really interesting collabs with streetwear designers, with illustrators, with people that were in the world of hype, whether they're artists or something a bit more elevated than just like a streetwear brand usually, but still widely known and people that could amplify what Dior was doing online. Someone like Daniel Arsham or Cause. Mary Grazia, she's done something about making kind of Dior a lot more global. And so she does a lot of collaborations within her collections. They do these big cruise collections where it's environmentally very questionable, but they will take tons of guests and film crews and everyone to a location like Seville or to Athens. And then she will work for a year in advance of that with local artisans, with um, you know different kind of dyers and weavers so that they can tell a unique story 
about this like fusion between this very French couture house and these like very famous international destinations. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I get that it's worked. We're seeing a lot more of these luxury brands bring their beauty in-house. So thinking about an Hermes launching fragrance a few years ago or whenever they did, Hermes launching lipsticks a couple of years ago and building out beauty and caring is, has said they are interested in potentially building some in-house beauty brands for a brand like Gucci that still has a lot of room to grow in that space. And How important do you think it is that there is consistency across the brand? Right now, that doesn't seem to matter because they're targeting a very specific customer. But do you think at some point there will need to be more brand unification across Dior? Or do you think that they've done it in certain ways and not in others and it's enough to know you have silhouettes across the men's and women's, the bar jacket or the saddlebag, those house codes exist on both sides that you don't need the marketing or the imagery from the beauty and the women's and the men's to all work together. I think they've been aware for a long time that it would be better if it worked together. Because when you just think about the sheer marketing heft of if you take all the spending on each of those perfumes and you make sure that that's going to have some transference and make sure that that's going to also be supporting the fashion and vice versa, you're really dealing with a very big and very powerful business then. On the other hand, their success to date really shows that you can have a more segmented approach. Their market share in perfume has been climbing pretty dramatically the past few years. Particularly Sauvage has been a really big success. The unification, it's something that they're working on and you see a lot more interconnections being done. They have transitioned slowly like the new logo to the perfumes, but it's a market that moves very slowly at a very different pace. So all of those kind of designer changes that happened in the past seven or eight years, you know, ever since Galliano left actually, so more than 10 years ago, they've had some big changes to the fashion image. And I think it just takes a really long time for the beauty to find the right way to catch up. It's interesting to compare them to Vuitton because Vuitton is a leather goods house and It has fashion, but the fashion seems to support the leather goods. And in their marketing, even when you have very, very different designers on the men's and women's side, have completely different points of view, 
there's something about that brand that it doesn't feel like it matters as much. Whereas a brand that's super fashion forward, like a Dior or Chanel, having disparate parts could feel a little trickier to a consumer who's absorbing all of it. I think the fashion has gotten much more unified. Fashion, homeware, kids wear, everything that all the different departments at Christian Dior Couture have been working on this a lot for sure. The beauty, I think where it could be challenging is maybe more in new markets because I think the convention that a perfume ad feels really different from a fashion ad and that it's a different kind of product targeting a different kind of person. I think that's something that almost everyone's quite used to in Europe or North America where we have a huge perfume industry for a long time that's historically been run by licensees and other kinds of third parties, you know, doing their own thing to a certain extent. Now in like a younger market like China, where perfume is just starting to take off, I would say that it is probably quite weird. Dior has been a very big fashion brand there now for, you know, 20 years. And now they probably start to see the ads for Sauvage or Miss Dior. And they're like, this is kind of off. But at the same time, it's getting more unified all the time. I mean, I think Miss Dior's latest campaigns, they've kind of reshot it all with, it's still Natalie Portman as the face. It's still the same vibe, but she's like wearing a Maria Grazia Chiori dress. They've been gradually doing little things like that to bring it all a bit more closely together. Your case study gets super, super granular. And I encourage anyone listening to this to download it because it's just a great story, but it's also a great example of what a modern luxury business is. And, and anyone who's in school learning about this stuff or running their own business, there's so much to learn about it. And Robert really went over every single detail. But one thing that I found pretty remarkable about Dior in particular is the size of its e-commerce business. When a lot of LVMH brands have only launched e-commerce in the last year or two, and and especially at the high end where brands are still wary to sell more expensive products, can you explain how Dior has approached e-commerce, especially through the pandemic and how it supports the physical retail? There's a story about just really good timing with what Dior did. I mean, it's some of the LVMH brands like Louis Vuitton, they had seen e-commerce as a big priority since a long time and kind of put that in place a bit sooner. So they weren't as caught by surprise by the pandemic. But with Dior, it could have gone a lot worse, but because they had actually been selling almost none of their fashion products, very few bags, they had an e-commerce site, but it was mainly for just seeing information about the products and getting kind of storytelling about the brand. The same way that Chanel's is today, kind of. It was that way until like 2018. They hired a new e-commerce director from My Teresa, and they just tried to you know roll out as many new markets as they could very quickly. I think they did six new countries in 2018 and then six more big countries in 2019. Some sources told me that e-commerce was, you know, just a few million back in 2018, and now it's, you know, more than 400 million. So that's a really, really substantial acceleration. And I think that's just due to not just the fact that they were prepared for the pandemic, but there was also this idea of sort of low-hanging fruit. And a lot of people all over the world who had gotten interested in the Dior name, and since Dior only has like 250 stores, they just didn't really ever end up getting around to going and buying a Dior product. And then suddenly you could just click. So 
it's been a, a big shakeup for them. You mentioned Gucci earlier, and we at BOF have covered Gucci's rise, and now I guess you could say slow down extensively because of the fact that those numbers were made so available. It's interesting to look at these two companies because I'd say from an industry perspective, from a critic, not that there are many fashion critics these days, but from a critical perspective, just industry response, Alessandro Michelli was really embraced by the industry and also by consumers. There's a, there's a real emotional connection to that brand that rivals would certainly die for. It's, it's just so people loved what he was doing so much and, and many people still do, but it was so fast and furious and intense that there had to be a come down. Whereas Dior seemed to approach in a bit of a different way. Can you explain what you see as the fundamental differences in how they have approached growing over the past few years and who you think is better positioned for the next two or three years? There's this question out there of, you know, is it possible for a brand to grow too big, too fast? These luxury brands, they trade on having sort of an aura of exclusivity. And so historically, they've wanted to do this very controlled growth and kind of for years and years, the strongest brands were always reporting, you know, 5% growth, 10% growth, 15% growth. And this is what has made brands like Hermes so sought after, doing this just very stable strategy that's very respected. Gucci, you know, tripled sales in like the space of four years and quadrupled profits. Dior, I think, is estimated to have tripled its sales as well from like 2.3 billion to 6.5 last year is what analysts are estimating. And profits are expected to have gone up, you know, maybe by as much as like a factor of 10. So on the one hand, it's happened so fast that it's very noticeable and you risk kind of saturating the market and consumers getting tired of it. On the other hand, they have so much more money at their disposal now to keep investing and keeping up that desirability. And I think that's what both of these brands are kind of going to be testing. With Dior, what is different is that it is a retail-only project. It's only sold through its own stores. There's no wholesale partners. And it's a full-price-only project. I think there's maybe still one Dior outlet in the world, and maybe they've closed that down recently. There was still one in New York until quite recently. That was the only one in the world. There's no end-of-season sales, no outletting. And so this kind of total control really protects you from having a really big kind of hangover to that growth. There's not like a lot of excess product circulating on the market that they would have like different risks of what people might do with it. So that's something that they really have going for them versus Gucci. Also, if they were to have a really dramatic slowdown, it's also not going to be quite as noticeable because it's in this much bigger portfolio where Louis Vuitton is still powering the profits for LVMH. And so if they have some issues, they have the luxury of fixing them behind the scenes, ramping up investments here, you know, having lower profitability one year than the year before because they're you know, cleaning house without having to always explain themselves to the market. And that's always been something that's really challenging for the brands within Caring, which each disclose their numbers, is that you don't get a lot of privacy in terms of how you invest in uh, sorting one situation out versus another. It can create a lot of pressure for the designers. Looking ahead, 
The big question for me is, can Dior ever catch up to Chanel in terms of reach or, or more importantly, and I'd say, will Louis Vuitton ever match Hermes in terms of prestige? I think the answer is a resounding no. I mean, who knows 10 years from now, but Chanel and Hermes are in a class on their own and especially Hermes in terms of prestige. But do you think that these LVMH brands and in particular Dior, since that's what we're talking about today, will they begin to match or surpass these independent players in terms of size? And do you think that they'll ever be viewed in the eyes of the consumer with the same regard as those two big players? When you look at Chanel and Dior, I think this analyst we work with a lot at BOF named Luca Solka, he did this report where he was testing that thesis that is it true that there's no such thing as bad brands, only bad managers? Is it all just about how you work with the brand or does it have some intrinsic qualities that would make it hard to like turn it into something it isn't? Chanel, she was with her brand for, I think, maybe 50 years when she passed away. And so there were decades of archives and of her foundational touch on every part of the business that then Carl was able to, for then almost 50 years, him rework and mine that really deep well of references. And I think consumers do feel that that it's like this very rich story behind this very purified, very clean image. Christian Dior died, I think, just 12 years after founding his house. It was in the 1950s. And so there isn't as rich of an archive of things from him. He did leave behind a memoir, a house, all kinds of drawings. But whether or not they can get the desirability up to the same level, it's challenging. But often brands are moving into new markets or new generations where they don't have the same kind of preconceived notions or narratives in mind. So these things that whatever makes us perceive one brand as better than another, that can be also transitory. It all depends on investments. Financially, I think catching up with Chanel would be a stretch considering that Chanel has had really rapid growth the past couple years itself. Dior has had faster growth. It does seem like it's getting closer, but it still has a pretty big gap to close. Always good to have a goal. One thing that's interesting, they don't say that they're benchmarking Chanel anymore. They like, you know, if you were to ask them about that, they would say, no, like we're competing with the whole market and also doing our own thing. And I do think that that's increasingly true, that I think they did find kind of a white space in what they were doing that I'm not sure that if they were, had been laser focused on catching up with Chanel, they would have had this items driven approach to really like reinvigorating the business with just so many different pieces of shoe and bag to buy. Fair point. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. I love talking shop with you and enjoy the rest of Fashion Week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm excited. Wanted to also quickly add a disclosure here that LVMH, the owner of Dior and Louis Vuitton and some of the other brands that we spoke to today, does hold a minority interest in the business of fashion part of a group of investors who invested in the website a while back. All investors have signed shareholders documentation guaranteeing BOF's complete editorial independence. I can also guarantee that for you, but just wanted to let you know. You've been listening to The Debrief, produced and edited by Emma Clark, Kate Barton, 
Eric Bria and Georgie Rutherford in the BOF studio. I'm Lauren Sherman, and I'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can join BOF Professional today with an exclusive 25% discount on an annual membership covering key industry topics from sustainability to technology to marketing with access to our case studies, live events, and iOS app. To get this special offer and benefit from 25% off of a membership, head to the link in the episode show notes or enter the coupon code DEBRIEF at checkout. Visit businessoffashion.com slash memberships. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.